0: Welcome to Unorthodoxy and to the first podcast of 2018. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and I have quite a few ideas of things that I want to share with you during the year. In fact, I'm I'm terribly excited about some of the things I've been grappling with, and and things that I really think uh, you will get a, a kick out of. Well, I guess that we just have to hope that I get to all the, all of the things I want to. Uh, for starters at, at some point fairly soon I will be starting a series on the book of Exodus and specifically looking at the archetypal significance of the Exodus story. It's a mind-blowing story when you start to really dig into the details and you will find things there as I have that that will make you look at the whole world differently. so'm I'm, I'm really excited that I get I'm going to be doing that fairly soon and then also, I'm hoping at at some point after that, um, let's see when I get there, to look at the intricate relationship between virtue, specifically classical virtue, and the question of the meaning of life. I think that's a a, a relationship that is not often discussed in 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 contemporary circles, and I think it's a a really mind blowing thing to explore. So that that's just a bit of a taste of some of the stuff that. I have coming up. But before I get to some of the bigger things that I have in mind for the podcast and maybe just to allow me some time to prepare properly, um, I thought to give you a few shorter podcasts on some sort of um, smaller topics. And to start the year off, I actually thought to play you a talk that I gave back in 2014 when I visited Libri in the UK. I had the opportunity there to speak about Chesterton and his theology of humor or more specifically the relationship between uh, theology and hilarity in Chesterton's work and it was a really great thing to be able to share with people and maybe you'll notice it but halfway through the talk I I started realizing that I was getting a cold which was a little inconvenient but I still got to get through the talk and and it's it's got a kind of Odd combination of some fairly kind of light stuff with some pretty heavy, high octane metaphysics. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if for no other reason than it's it's probably not like any other talk you've ever heard before on on the subject of humor. It's probably also a good idea for me to mention that the this talk that I that you'll listen to if you <laughs> stick with it became the kind of ground for an article that I wrote for the Radical Orthodoxy Journal. So I'm going to also post a link to that article in the show description. I think, you know, the value of the article is that it obviously gets into a little bit more detail that I couldn't get to in the talk. So maybe you want to check that out. I do want to acknowledge that I got this recording from the Libri Ideas Library. And I would highly encourage you, if you ever have the chance to obviously look at the Libri Ideas Library, I'll post a a link to it in the show notes, but also... Try and get to visit Libri. It's a really interesting uh, way of looking at the world. Uh, They kind of look at this idea of of intentional community. People from all over the world go and live together in these houses, live with strangers, and they have to figure out what it means to live in community, kind of like the early Christians did. With that out of the way, here is the talk. I hope that you enjoy it, but more than that, I really hope that you have a really excellent. 2018. I hope that it is good in the deepest and richest sense of that word. Well, thank you for having me here. What I want to talk about is Chesterton and a theology of humor. Um, Initially, Chesterton is not going to be mentioned for a little bit, and then I will get to him. I promise. He's the reason uh, we should be here. So, there there is a joke about Jesus who went to play golf with a Pharisee and one of his disciples. And this may be blasphemous, but we we will see how it goes. So he plays, he sets up at the tee, and he takes a wild swing. The ball flies completely off course towards the rough, hits a tree, flies into the air. An eagle grabs the ball, takes the ball, drops it on the green. Just as it hits the green, a gentle gust of wind nudges the ball into the hole. And the Pharisee that's playing with him says to his disciple, who the hell does this guy think he is? (laughs) And his disciple nudges the Pharisee and he says, he thinks he's Tiger Woods. (laughs) Um, Is that the sort of joke that Christians are allowed to laugh at? That's actually, um, a number of years ago I was watching Rowan Atkinson's 1992 live act on, on on TV and he does this skit called The Amazing Jesus. And I happened to be watching this with a, a bunch of friends from a Bible study group that I was at. And Atkinson does his usual thing and, and makes Jesus out to be a magician, who does wonderful work. Uh, he the wedding at Cana, he turns water into wine, and his disciples go, "Wow, this guy's really good. Go ahead, do another one." And halfway through this, I, I found myself the only person in the room laughing. My Bible study group, dead serious. And this got me wondering, was my laughter blasphemous? Good question. What had caused the sense of humor failure of my friends? Was their commitment to Christianity to blame? Was I not Christian enough? And really, what is the relationship between Christianity and humor? What is interesting is that the church, uh, the Christian church globally, has been accused of a number of things, irrelevance, naivety, mythologizing, moralizing, bigotry, but it doesn't often get accused of being funny. <laughs> I don't understand this. It's not like, some oh, those Christians, they're so irritating, they're always making jokes. That's not one of the, the defining characteristics of Christians. And what is interesting, there's, there's a, a Slovenian philosopher who's quite yeah. well-known named Slavoj Žižek. The reason he's well-known is because his name is really difficult to pronounce. But he says that the problem with Christians that he finds is that they miss the joke of Christianity. He doesn't explain what the joke of Christianity is. That would have probably been helpful. But the problem is, in a way, his, that perspective that Christians are kind of devoid of humor it's not that difficult to support with history. Um, I want to re- read you a passage from Ammonius, who was a monk. Ammonius, monk. He already sounds like trouble. <clears throat> he says, I, and I'm not messing with you, this is real. Laughter is the beginning of the destruction of the soul. <laughs> o monk. When you notice something of that, know that you have arrived at the depth of evil. Then do not cease to pray God that He might rescue you from this death. Laughter expels the virtues and pushes aside the thoughts on death and the meditation on the punishment. Ammonius was not a fun guy to, to hang around. Uh, so. So that is not a good start. And unfortunately, throughout Christian history, uh, we we have other supporters of a lack of sense of humor. Basil of Caesarea, St. Basil, yeah, he was a saint. Uh, Laughter for him was antithetical to self-mastery. St. Benedict says that the provocation of laughter was contrary to the holy life. Other monastic orders regarded laughter as the grossest breach of the... Of the vow of silence or the, role, uh, the rule of silence. Laughter in some medieval uh, monastic traditions causes the mouth to be filthy. And I'm, I, this is genuine, there is genuine scholarship that's gone into this, so genuine, as in I gave it at least 20 minutes of thought. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, who is famous for being German, said that laughter. <laughs> Actually, that is she? yeah, anyway, um, laughter was a sin for her because um, because it actually provided relief from work, and work is a punishment dished out by God after the fall, so no relief from work is allowed, uh, and it's not just med- medieval uh, monastics who were guilty of, of eradicating laughter. We have John Wesley, who I saw a book in the Libri library, John Wesley, good old John, uh, he was very much against his brother-in-law, who could break a jest and laugh at it heartily. And there I was quoting John Wesley. John Calvin, too, very unsurprisingly, was known for being particularly crabby. He knew how to take the fun out of fundamentalism. Uh, although, um, to be fair, to be fair, uh, it is possible that laughter is predestined for some and not for others. <laughs> And one of the the things that I, I suppose makes this this taking out of laughter or this removal of laughter from Christianity something easy to believe is that the Bible records Jesus to have wept, but not to have laughed. But the Bible also doesn't record that Jesus urinated, and we're pretty certain that he did that too. Uh, and it's very interesting how that, that didn't get a laugh. Uh, laughter. Uh, Recently, uh, a man named Vasilis Saraglou, who is famous for nothing, uh, said that he felt that religion, and in in particular he was referring to Christianity, religion and humor are an a priori incompatibility. I'm quoting a study, he he actually studied religious people and their relationship with humor. And he said this, In personality psychology, Religion associates negatively with personality traits, cognitive structures, and social consequences typical of humor. It is possible, he says, that religious people may have a good sense of humor despite their religiosity, but not because of it. But he insists that we sh- we should not assume that their sense of humor is because of. So, in essence, we are not. We cannot assume that their sense of humor is because of their faith. Saragui says, religiosity predictably produces a number of of anti-sense-of-humor qualities. Closed-mindedness, rigid dogmatism, intolerance, resistance to ambiguity. Fair enough. Although, when I looked at those, I was like, isn't he describing Richard Dawkins? Uh, (laughs) Closed-mindedness, rigid dogmatism, intolerance, resistance to ambiguity. Okay, so that raises a question. So, isn't he talking about a particular quality of personality... And not a quality of religiosity. And I think that's where uh, things start to get interesting. So my central question is how can Christianity and humor be reconciled? To answer this question, I I want to look at G.K. Chesterton's work. Because he was a theologian and he was incredibly funny. And which is very helpful for us, he actually wrote about humor. He wrote about how it works and what it's for. I do have to warn you, though, quite big portions of this talk are going to get very serious. uh, And I will use big words, which Chesterton would have thought is appalling. He said that people who use big words are very lazy, which is true of me. So I'm okay with that. Um, Chesterton says this. And I quote, so far from it being irrelevant to use silly metaphors on serious questions, it is one's duty to use silly metaphors on serious questions. It is the test of one's seriousness. It is the test of a responsible religion or theory, whether it can take examples from pots and pans and boots and butter tubs. It is the test of a good philosophy, whether you can defend it grotesquely. It is the test of a good religion if you can joke about it. Now, I do want to clear, clear something up. He's not using some kind of weird oxymoronic logic that says that the serious must automatically be silly. That's not what he's getting at. What he, I think, is getting at is that what matters primarily is one's attitude towards reality, not one's opinion of it. I think this is an interesting thing, a distinction to make. Often we think of Christianity as doxa, as, as opinions about reality whereas what Chesterton gets at is yes opinions are incredibly important views on reality are important but what Christianity's fundamental contribution is is that it talks about a posture towards reality does that make sense no okay so it's the way we stand in relation to reality our attitude towards reality that's the kind of central thing I'm glad that I was able to make that muddier than it was Good. So, a good religion is the foundation of the kind of posture that allows for jokes. That w- would be what Chesterton says. A good religion allows a posture that that gives rise to a sense of humor. If human Christianity can be reconciled, it will then, then be the kind of posture towards reality that Christianity rec- uh, encourages and this would be a posture that is not closed minded or rigidly dogmatic or intolerant or resistant to ambiguity. So what helps to understand what we're looking for, this kind of posture towards reality that we're looking for, it's helpful to actually understand how jokes work. And so what's interesting is a whole range of people have tried to figure out what is the formula for a joke. What is the scientific formula for a joke? Add this, add that. Laughter. Um, And the closest formula I think that has been arrived at is by a a guy named Thomas Veach. He says that the conditions for the perception of humor includes a combination of a sense of a violation of some subjective principle, and I'll go through this again, a violation of some subjective principle combined with a, a perception that the situation is actually normal. There's a guy named Pete McGraw who summarizes this as the benign violation theory. So there's some kind of violation of some subjective principle, but also a sense that actually it's not really terrible. It's kind of a normal thing. And so the anatomy of a joke is basically, in essence, where some, there's a moral ideal of some kind that has been violated, but not really. Good, that confused everyone. Okay, so um, when I get to the, the jokes, you, you'll you see how that, I mean, actually the one I told earlier might be a good example. It's a violation to see think of Jesus as thinking of himself as Tiger Woods, but it is benign because we know it isn't true. Fair enough? Um, the people who think that I think that it's true, they will find that it is just a violation and not benign and therefore will not laugh. So um, this helps. A lady named Lydia Amur says that humor is the result of the conflict between the self and an external object. So you as a self approach reality. Something jumps into view that is completely outside of your expectation and you laugh, even if it's terrible, because it's a surprise. And this actually fits really nicely with Chesterton's own theory on humor. He says this, Why is it funny that a man should uh, sit down suddenly in the street? There is only one possible or intelligent reason. That man is the image of God. It is not funny that anything else should fall down, but only that a man should fall down. No one sees anything funny in a tree falling down, unless they're insane. Sorry, that's me, not Chesterton. No one sees a delicate absurdity in a stone falling down. No one stops in the road and roars with laughter at the sight of snow coming down. Fair enough. It is only when a man tumbles down that we laugh. Classic slipping on banana peel, Charlie Chaplin stuff. Why do we laugh? Because it is a grave religious matter. It is the fall of man. <laughs> only, only man can be absurd because only man can be dignified. So right here, we have kind of three initial conditions for humor. We know that it's a posture that allows a clash between the self and the other. That's, that's that part. It also requires a clear sense of the nature of man as dignified, but capable of indignity. And then thirdly, a very clear sense of what dignity itself entails. And here it gets a bit tricky, uh, I'm afraid. So to understand how a posture towards reality can help or hinder our perception of humor, it's helpful to read Chesterton through the lens of William Desmond, who is an Irish philosopher who lives in America, which I don't understand, but uh, why, why anyone would want to move there? <laughs> Violation or just the mine? I'm not sure. Okay. So William Desmond has this theory. He says there, there, there is a fourfold sense of being. There are four dominant postures that we can have towards yeah. being, i.e. existence or what is. These are and forgive my French, Univ- the univocal, the equivocal, the dialectical, and the metaxological. <laughs> I will explain these with, with shorter words, small, um, neatly packageable words. Okay. And, and I'm going to go through it again and again just until it, 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 the penny drops because I, I had to read the, the same book several times uh, in the morning to get it. Um, the univocal stance towards being... Is the idea that things are, un, there is an unmediated oneness in being. Unmediated meaning we don't have to figure out what it means, it's just self evident. You know this every time you drink tea. It just is tea, right? You don't question it, you don't go, I'm not sure, is this a donkey? Uh, there's like, it, it looks like tea, it smells like tea, it tastes like tea. There's an unmediated oneness. Things are self-evidently true. Then the, so, you the, I said univocal, you can split it up. It's the univocal, one voice. Okay? Then there is the equivocal stance towards being, which is the idea that there is an unmediated or unmediatable otherness in being. So, When you're trying to make sense of things, you arrive at this horrible conclusion that you can't make sense of anything. Uh, There's a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida who does this. So that's the equivocal stance towards being. And then there is the dialectical. This is the idea that being, existence, what is, is mediatable into the same, into the self. So my posture towards being, if I am a dialectician is to assume that everything is ultimately something I can understand in my own terms, or on my own terms. Okay? What you are experiencing now is the equivocal stance towards being. <laughs> what the hell is this guy saying? I use the word hell, of course, in its theological sense. Um, and then there is the, lastly, the metaxological stance towards being. Metaxu in Greek means the between. Ological means... Oh, it's sensible, logical, it's this structure of discourse, <laughs> something like that. So, so the very antith- antithesis of what I'm saying um, is logical. Good, I, I'm the only one who got my own joke there, uh, and the three people at the back, thank you. Um, so, this is being, okay, and uh, forgive me again, another big word, but this is the posture towards being as intermediation, in other words, I have a stance towards being and I mediate myself to existence and reality and what is and the other the person or the thing or the object the experience of being mediates itself to me as well and there is a relationship it's a dance it's a, it's an expression it's two notes coming together without losing their unique sense of being and there is harmony and this is how so there's that stance towards being and what's kind of nice to do, and this is what I am going to do, is try each of these stances of towards being as if they were spectacles you're wearing. And look look through the wo- look at the world through the univocal, equivocal, dialectical, and metaxological stances towards being. Specifically with the idea of what makes things funny in mind. Okay, so the univocal, to recap, it is it is that which stresses the obvious unity of being. It prioritizes a simple sameness over multiplicity, mediation and difference. It is true, in a sense. It is true that being we can have this univocal stance towards being because we have to be able to distinguish things. That's what makes understanding meaning possible. So we can distinguish between things. and. The tea is the tea, the chair is the chair. If you didn't know the difference, you'd be sitting in your tea. Um, But it is false in a number of other ways. It resists complexity, it resists ambiguity, otherness, playfulness, and incongruity. So it's ultimately actually a kind of self-limiting thing, which undermines itself by being self-limiting. I'm so sorry that I've just lost you. Okay, so let me try, try a joke in the univocal sense. A duck walks into the bar, like a. Anyway, and the barman says, What will it be? And the duck says, Nothing, because it's a duck. <coughs> uh, well, the, tr- <laughs> the, uh, the trouble with that joke. <laughs> it's, it's a. Well, they, okay, another one. Um, what's brown and sticky? A stick. Uh, what's uh, black and flies to the air? A flock of marmite. That's actually not really, um, that's not really a univocal. The trouble is, in all of these jokes, there's a very clear sense that there is some kind of mediation going on, right? There is, a, even if the, st- the structure of the joke sets up the fact that it's going to be a joke, and when it isn't, you laugh because there's nothing to laugh at. There is always going to be mediation. The univocal doesn't allow for humor because it doesn't allow for incongruity. It doesn't allow for ambiguity. Humor relies on these things. And so what's fascinating to me is that this is actually the stance that is is most associated with religiosity in general. Things are self-evidently true. We don't have to question anything. Just believe what you see. What you see is what you get. WYSIWYG. Uh and and that's we know from especially you know, with a little bit of experience and that, that that's not how it works. The bureaucracy works like this. The joke is actually often on the univocally inclined. They're very easy to joke about because they have one view and they don't see the joke. Uh so Chesterton uses this as as an example. He says the morbid logician seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The determinist makes a theory of causation quite clear and then finds that he cannot say if you please to the housemaid. And this is the thing, the determinist, everything is determined. You cannot, you, you don't have a will of your own. So did you say that or is that just like some bunch of particles in your head just bouncing around because they were predetermined from the foundations of the world? the univocal doesn't really allow for humor the joke um, as I said is on the univocally inclined so what about the equivocal stance towards being this is helpful this is an idea that the other is really weird and you can't really understand it and you can't explain it or mediate it in any way it allows for difference and ambiguity in fact that's all it allows for The world is a completely weird thing. And actually, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of true. The world is very odd. Um, And you'll find non sequitur jokes are very typical of the equivocal stance towards being. Woody Allen is a master of this. He says, for example, My one regret in life is that I'm not somebody else. (laughs) Or, um, I failed to make the chess team because of my height. (laughs) Uh, this one is from the mighty Boosh, British comedy. My uncle once punched a man so hard his legs turned into trombones. <laughs> so, aha! Uh-huh. So, what's interesting here is there is something going on in the, equi- in the equivocal stance towards being that allows for humour. But the equivocal stance towards being assumes that there is that mediation is impossible. And here we have a clear sense of mediation. And Chesterton explains this like the non-secretary in this way. He says, To those who say there is nothing abiding in what we know, Chesterton responds that it cannot be true that there is nothing abiding in what we know. For if that were so, we should not know it at all and we should not call it knowledge. The fact of two things being different, in other words, in the equivocal space, implies that they are similar. A hare and the tortoise may differ in the quality of swiftness, but they must agree in the quality of motion. The swiftest hare cannot be swifter than an isosceles triangle or the idea of pinkness. (laughs) Fair enough, I agree with him. So mediation is always involved, even when we perceive that a thing is beyond mediation. Um, That we recognize its mysteriousness is precisely the result of being confronted with the limits of mediation. So when we see mystery, we have a sense of, hang on, there's something here that I cannot mediate, but I still mediate its mystery as mystery.
1: When you say mediate, do you mean communicate?
0: Yes, that's a close enough approximation mediation is basically something that goes between two things media as in in the middle so communication is a very good approximation thanks for asking are we okay so far maybe th- this is a good point to okay i it gets better i promise uh, or w- or worse i'm not sure i mean most of the rest of the talk i, d- I don't know what happens um so uh, what's Fascinating to me is Christianity, Christianity, Christian theology, is founded on the idea that mediation is inescapable. Christ is the mediator. There's that that picture that comes through in the Bible. There's this idea that the logos is at the center of, of theology. The mediation, the communication is at the center of all theology. Theology is mediation about God. We can't get away from mediation, so the univocal may teach us something. Yes, of course there are things that are self-evident. The equivocal may teach us something. Of course there are things that are beyond our ability to mediate. But they are not e- enough to, uh, to explain humor. And so whatever stances they represent, Christianity does not really fall into those two uh, categories. So what about the dialectical? Dialectic, um, same root word as the word dialogue, so that may be kind of helpful. It at least allows for this idea that there is a self and there is an other. There is a dialogue, self and other. That's simple enough. So it's basically the the acceptance of the assimilatability of otherness. I made up the word assimilatability because I couldn't find an appropriate other word. Okay. I will stop this moment and and just blow my nose. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's my brain. It's leaking out. Okay. Good. So, um, the dialectical attempts to grapple honestly with the sameness, the univocal, and the different, the equivocal. But it always places emphasis on the side of the same. I can mediate reality through my own perspective. It's all something I can tame. So you can already s- start to see. Now, would humor survive in this? And my answer is no, because you would end up explaining the joke. Um, so, E.B. White, who's famous for um, *Charlotte's Web*, yes, he says he says that analysts have got have had their go at humor. I'm sorry for being one of them. And I've read some of their interpretations in literature, but without being greatly instructed. Humor can be dissected, as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. So, the dialectical is like dissecting a, ju- a, a frog. You, dis- you dissect the joke, but the problem is that you overexplain. So you don't let the strangeness of the joke, the surprise of the joke, actually live. And I think that's the main problem. We need otherness. And so, to our rescue comes the metaxological. Laughter, William Desmond contends, is ultimately grounded in the generous agape, the love of being. Though most of it takes shape in the equivocal. It is, I would say, the recovery of the equivocal after dialectic. So it's kind of, the equivocal taps into mystery. It taps into the fact that there is an oddness in things. You know this. If you say the word dog repeatedly, this is actually Chesterton's example. If you say the word dog repeatedly, it will start sounding stranger and stranger and stranger. You will start going, why did we pick that word to describe that thing? There is an oddness in being, but... There is always mediation, and this, I think, taps into the the posture towards being that we're looking for, because it allows for humour. Um, the Metaxological is, and I quote, uh, an interme- intermediation between beings who are open holes, not holes like big gaping holes, but holes as in solid things. Until they, Unto themselves, without being completely determined by themselves. We are relational beings. We relate to the world. We exist through other people and with other people. And somehow beyond other things. I still hold to the opinion that I am better than tea. Although, that's difficult to actually argue theologically. It's probable that God actually invented tea and went, Whoa! This stuff is so good. I need to give it to people. I need to invent people so they can drink it. Um, and there you have my theology of tea. So, being presents itself always as excessive, inexhaustible, over-determined. It affirms our being as a complex, as in the metaxological, affirms our being as a complex interrelatedness. We are between beings, being betweens, depending on which order you you prefer. And this is actually exactly what Chesterton describes as the fundamental nature of man. He says the primary paradox is that man is superior to all things around him and yet is at their mercy. Man has a kind of spiritual immensity within that is always co-inherent with his littleness and restriction without have you ever thought of that? You look at a, an open field and, and your view is infinite, or at least it extends really far, but you are really tiny. And Chesterton says, this is actually a joke, because for human beings it is true that the inside is larger than the outside. And and you can imagine stepping into a phone booth and discovering that it is humongous inside. I think that's actually like with Doc, Doctor Who, there's something Doctor Who there? Um Elsewhere, Chesterton writes that man himself is a joke in the sense of a paradox, that there is something very extraordinary about his position, and therefore presumably about his past, is the clearest sort of common sense. Alone of all the creatures, he is not self-sufficient, even while he is supreme. So you start to get a sense that Chesterton is painting this idea of people as between beings. And so I'm going to read. Uh, he, he has this ex- extensive uh, description of man as a between being. The human being, he says, dare not sleep in his own skin. He cannot simply put his food into his stomach. He has to put the latter first into the oven and cover the former first with external and foreign hair. He is always sleeping in somebody else's skin. In one sense, he is a cripple amongst the creatures. He is at once imperfect. And artificial, like a monster with two glass eyes and two wooden legs, he is propped up on artificial crutches called furniture. He is patched and protected with bandages that are called clothes. Properly visualized, he is grotesque, not when he sits on his hat, hat, but when he allows a hat to sit on him. (laughs) Properly understood, he is not so ridiculous as when he um, sits—sorry—sits on a chair, sits on a hat, as when he sits on a chair. That's where the ridiculousness is. You're sitting on a chair. No one really questions this, but it's a terribly odd thing to do. The the human race only figured out how to do this much later, and I'm pretty sure it was the English. Uh, and for, for this, I commend them. Uh, properly understood, he is not... Yeah, sorry. Um, for then he is acting like some monstrous sort of crippled quadruped and equipping himself with four wooden legs, why the Lord of Creation is a cripple in this queer sense is an open question, but some maintain it is because he had a great fall. <laughs> so Chesterton articulates two things about what what it means to be a between being. One, we are animals who are godlike, and he says the process that ends in a joke necessarily begins with a certain idea of dignity. The sense of idea of dignity is in some way implied beforehand incongruity cannot break on him without the pre-existence or presupposition of something with which it fails to be congruous in other words before you arrive at a joke you have to have a sense of the congruous things fit it totally fits and then something interrupts that perspective and proves that things maybe don't fit always the way that you expect them to Although sometimes uh, this is not very funny, as in when your car breaks and you burst into tears. The second thing that Chesterton notes about man is that we are gods slash animals who have fallen. We do not live up to the ideals that we have. And this this is a strange thing that Chesterton says that even vulgar jokes tend to have some kind of deep spiritual meaning. He suggests that once you have got hold of a vulgar joke, you may be certain that you have got hold of a subtle and spiritual idea. Those who make vulgar jokes do so because they have observed something deep that they could not express except by something silly and emphatic. They have seen something delicate which they could only express by something indelicate. Um, and he's not, he's not defending vulgar jokes as a way to go, necessarily, because uh, there, are, there are bad jokes. I've, I've had a few tonight. I'm very sorry. But, but it is true that, that even the vulgarity is only possible because there is some higher idea of what is true and good and right and beautiful. So there, there is that. The transcend, transcendentals are very much present. It is because of our own being between that we are alone among the animals in being shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. That's from Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man. As if we had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe, hidden from the universe itself. Only man is caught in this sense of, this awareness of what it means to be between. Um, I'm sure you've laughed at animals for being funny. Uh, For uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, which is basically, should be renamed Catbook, because that's really all that gets shown there. Um, There are lots of pictures of cats doing silly things. And they're funny, but they're only funny, they're not funny to the cat. (laughs) Last time I checked, cats do not have a sense of humor. They are very funny creatures, but they're funny because they remind us of ourselves. Pelicans have very big beaks, but we think of noses, magnificent noses, human noses. And that's why a pelican could be funny. Monkeys are particularly funny because they remind us of our own relatives. And so, this is the, the amazing thing. We are aware of our being between. And so, our actual primary experience of reality is paradoxical. It is metaxological. So, whatever worldview we are looking for that, that presents this stance, this posture towards being as the best expression of what it means to be human, that is going to be true. That is going to be the truth because it speaks to our human experience but it also speaks about what it means to rise beyond what we expected and of course it allows for jokes which is I think the whole point of of tonight's talk one one of the passages that I think really expresses what Chesterton is getting at in terms of what it means to be between is from his book uh, Tremendous Trifles anyone read that? thank you what uh, fun Fun is had by all who read it. And he he says this fantastic thing. He says, more he tells a little story. More than a month ago, when I was leaving London for a holiday, a friend walked into my flat in Battersea and found me surrounded with half-packed l- luggage. "'You seem to be off on your travels,' he said. "'Where are you going?' With a strap between my teeth, I replied, "'To Battersea.' "'The wit of your remark,' he said, wholly escapes me. "'I'm going to Battersea,' I said." to Battersea via Paris, Belfort, Heidelberg, and Frankfurt. My remark contained no wit; it contained simply the truth. I am going to wander all over the world until I wa- once more find Battersea. Somewhere in the seas of sunset or sunrise, somewhere in the ultimate archipelago of the earth, there is one little island that I wish to find, an island with low green hills and white, great white cliffs. Travelers tell me that it is called England." Scotch travelers tell me that it is called Britain, and there is a rumor that somewhere in the heart of it, there is a beautiful place called Battersea. I suppose it is unnecessary to tell you, said my friend, with an air of intellectual comparison, that this is Battersea. (laughs) It is quite unnecessary, I said, and it is spiritually untrue. I cannot see any Battersea here. I cannot see any London or any England. I cannot see that door. I cannot see that chair because a cloud of sleep and custom has come across my eyes. The only way to get it back is to go somewhere else. And that is the real object of travel and the real pleasure of holidays and research trips to the UK to visit (laughs) the Chesterton Library and Brie. Do you suppose that I go to France in order to see France? (laughs) Uh, do you suppose that I go to see Germany in order to go to Germany in order to see Germany? I shall enjoy them both, but it is not them that I am seeking. I am seeking Battersea <laughs> isn 't that We need I think a philosophy or a theology that helps us to see what jo- John Milbank calls this double glory paradoxa the double glory of We really are between. We need to encounter the familiarity of the world and its real strangeness, which I I will get to. And it is this exact same philosophy slash theology that will allow us to keep our sense of humor, I think. The purpose of paradox is to let things be themselves. The language of Christianity is the language of paradox. It lets things be placed side by side in order to let them clash. It's not supposed to be self-containing. So it's not just verbal comparison. It propels us, I think, to see the transcendent. It should be, uh, Chesterton says, paradox should be suggestive and fruitful rather than barren or abortive. It is, and I like Chesterton's language here. He says paradox is stereoscopic. You see two pictures, and because you see two pictures, you see better. We know this. I mean, our, we have stereoscopic uh, vision. Um, audio works pretty well in stereo too. We will agree that we hear better for hearing two different um, pictures. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, so uh, so this is the the thing that we need. We need paradox. It makes way, I think, for the sheer quiddity of things, the oddness of things for being what they are. It lets, to to use Chesterton's comparison, it lets red be red and white be white without creating the disgusting combination that is the color pink. There is something irreducible in being. There is something irreducible. Chairs are chairs. Minds are minds. Eyes are eyes. Everything is itself, but we can't always fully comprehend things as they are because we can't contain it. Chesterton has this wonderful picture. He says that we should be mystics. A mystic is the opposite of a maniac. A maniac is someone who tries to put the whole world into his head. The result is that his head explodes. The mystic is someone who tries to get his head into the heavens. And that's easy because there's space. So paradox is Honest. And that's the thing. So that's one of the virtues of the between. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about those. In Chesterton's mind, the enemies of truth are also the enemies of humor. Pride, complacency, dishonesty, irreligiousness, and idolatry. He also says there are other enemies of humor. A lack of playfulness, literal mindedness, authoritarianism, <laughs> anti-disestablishmentarianism. Actually, that's not one of them, but I just wanted to say the word because it's fun. A lack of courage and risk-taking. The, to have a sense of humor, you have to be willing to take risks. The idea here is that there are some virtues that undergird this, this uh, celebration of paradox in Chesterton's writings. And, and these are what I, I want to tackle quickly, very quickly, because we are... How much time do we have? But we need question time, yes. Okay, so I'm going to go through uh, three virtues of the between that Chesterton celebrates. The first is honesty. Honesty lets things be what they are. Chesterton says that jokes are generally honest. Complete solemnity is almost always dishonest. Solemnity or over-seriousness creates a distorted perception of things. And Chesterton uses some wonderful examples. He says, um, the, the writer of the leading article... Of a, of a journal or whatever, has to pretend that he has known a fact that, uh, that he has studied the fact that he's known for 20 minutes as if he studied it for 20 years. Seriousness creates an overemphasis, usually on our own sense of self importance. And that's something that Chesterton says is obviously problematic. He, he says this beautiful thing Honesty is never solemn, it is only hypocrisy that can be that. Honesty always laughs because things really are so laughable. Mm-hmm. The surprise of any joke is not in contradicting reality, or, but it, it is in subverting what we have perceived to be reality. We think of things, people who, who think they are self, well, who have a big sense of their own self importance tend to be the most devoid of humor. I mean, you just have to look at politicians to, to see how true that is. Uh, the joke, and again, the joke is always on the univocal, univocally inclined. Chesterton then celebrates another virtue of the between, humility. Humility is very simply that which is required to admit what is true. He says, being undignified is the very... Sen- uh, Essence of all real happiness, whether before God or man. Hilarity involves humility. Nay, it involves humiliation. Even the idea of being made to laugh contains in it a certain kind of coercion. Kind of held at gunpoint by the joke. When you laugh, you are submissive to the joke. So, so that which is involved in humor is humility. This self-effacement is in the essence of Christianity itself. If you look at the Beatitudes, they're really jokes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they actually get what God's kingdom is about. What? It's completely ludicrous. Chesterton actually does his own reading of the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed is he that expecteth nothing, for he shall be gloriously surprised. Blessed is he that expecteth nothing, for he shall shall possess the cities and the mountains. Blessed is the meek, for he shall inherit the earth. So he explains it via a joke, and I think that's actually just uh, spot on. For Chesterton, religion is much nearer to riotous happiness than it is to the detached and temperate types of happiness which gentlemen and philosophers find their peace. He suggests that riot means being a rotter, and religion means knowing that you're a rotter. A state of fallenness makes Hardly a dent in the realization of the kingdom of heaven. Rather, in the vulnerability of humor, in this recognition of the twin possibilities of a lightness of heart and of the hurt that in in the face of uh, corrupt ideals, that the kingdom is more readily recognized. The thing that is interesting to me, and this is kind of the crux of humility, Chesterton says that it is the secure who are humble. It is the people who are secure who can joke. And if you think about it, this is really interesting. Humor itself is only possible in secure circumstances, when you feel like you're safe. There are people, of course, who laugh at circumstances that are really not funny, but they're trying to bring levity to their hardship and work because God imposed it on them at the fall. And so there is the sense that we we need to... Recognize the security that is necessary for humor, Chesterton calls Christianity the boundaries of a playground. I think that 's such a beautiful picture because it's, it's in the it's, it can be very serious. John Calvin can be very serious, very serious, uh, but what happens if it is precisely that sort of seriousness? Chesterton would be horrified that i 'm about to speak of Calvin positively, but anyway um It is maybe within that seriousness that genuine laughter and joy is actually possible, because it is security. The more, I mean, Christianity claims to, to, well, be pointing to the truth that is the ultimate truth. If it is pointing to the ultimate truth, it should provide the ultimate security. Humour should certainly be possible. The final final virtue of the between is hospitality. Christianity stresses the role of community, and a joke is always meant for company. I don't know if you've ever tried to tell a joke to yourself. (laughs) I I have. uh, It's never funny. I don't understand uh, why, but it seems that jokes are meant for community. Laughter is meant for community. Of course, you have laughed at things when you're on your own. but uh, we'll forgive you for that. Um, those people, for Chesterton, who have a sense of the center, who are honest and humble before genuine otherness, and this is what hospitality really is, it's it's humility before otherness. So you have the self and the other and the clash. And in that clash, you have a sense of humor. You laugh. In fact, there's, there's one theorist whose name I can't think of who, who calls... Laughter is a signal of transcendence. I don't know if you've ever thought of laughter as that, but it's a signal, it's a sign that transcendence is really there, it's really possible. So, in short, Chesterton's theory of humor is root, rooted in an incarnational theology. And I mean, the, the, the prime metaxological condition is the inc- incarnation. The, para- the ultimate paradox is Christ, who is both God and man. How that works... Is beyond me, but it's true and it mirrors our experience of how reality itself works. It's incarnational. It celebrates values like honesty, humility, and hospitality, and it is rooted in a theology that accommodates otherness and the familiar, the other and the self. And in that space the joke can happen. Finally, Chesterton's fundamental image for one who genuinely revels in the between being of being human is the image of a child. The child is someone who glories in monotony, who is in awe of the familiar. I have a a four-month-old daughter who is completely amazed at the ceiling. (laughs) There is nothing more amazing than the ceiling, and it's astonishing because it's so commonplace to us. But Chesterton says, actually, that is true. That is a true perception of being, because that involves genuine wonder at the otherness of things. The child is, in, is the image of God who has an eternal appetite of infancy. God is eternally fascinated by the ordinary I think that, that is something that Chesterton's theology presents. A child is, is one who looks at all things new. Chesterton's entire theological project is, concerns this recovery of wonder. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Chesterton's work, and I'm fairly familiar, I've, I've read at least half of his 80 books. Um, he's just fascinated by this trip away from Battersea to recover Battersea. This trip to set off to discover a new country and then accidentally discover England, thinking it is somewhere else. And that, that is at the center. And he says, for example, this, if you do not think it extraordinary that a pumpkin is always a pumpkin, think again. You have not yet begun the philosophy. You have not even seen a pumpkin. The final image that I want to leave with you before I uh, open myself up to gunfire and tomatoes is the image of confession. Chesterton says, at the end of confession, of course, Chesterton being a good Catholic uh, towards the end of his life, he had this picture of confession. You walk out of the booth and you may be gray and garty, but you are five minutes old. And, And at the center of Christianity, at the center of Christian theology, is this idea of the renewedness of all things and the renewal of all things. And I think that for this reason... Christianity and humor are pretty easy actually to reconcile. Thank you. Okay, so uh, if you have questions, now is a very good time to ask someone else. <laughs> or me, if you really want. Yes.
1: I'm thinking about your point about making jokes about Jesus. Yes. And I'm thinking about where the joke becomes blasphemy. Is there such a point at which humour does move beyond the the pain? Yes. But uh, how how does one tell that when one thinks of perhaps another world religion where the, the least joke about someone is take never it heard so- of a
0: religion <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just take it so seriously that your life
1: is in danger. Yeah. Now is this a fundamental, <coughs> absolutely fundamental difference
0: between those two worldviews? Yeah. I think one of the things that's such a thank you, that's such a good question. One of the, the fundamental things about paradox is that it, it should be letting things be themselves. What Chesterton says it is possible to absorb the paradox. So you keep it as a statement, and because I've noticed there are, there are Christians who believe quite, and, and theologians, who will definitely say paradox is important. But they've reduced it, I think, to a statement. And the interesting thing is, then they have taken the, the paradoxical and reduced it to the dialectical. In other words, the self becomes the center of reality. It is the measure of all things, as Protagoras says. And so I would say that the fundamental kind of humor that where it goes wrong, to answer your, the first part of your question, is the kind of humor that sets the self up as more important than the subject. Pride. So Chesterton, Chesterton would say that that kind of prideful humor is, is poisonous because it creates a distorted set, a perception of the self. It's very, and, and I think that's actually where we go wrong the most. Is, is in, so in certain religions... Uh, and let's include Christianity in that, because I think you can use Christian language, with, with but fail to adopt the posture that Christianity encourages. Um, and in that sort of fundamentalist space, that which is paradoxical has been reduced to the univocal. It's kind of one-track one literal-mindedness. Um, the, the interesting thing, if you want to take a psychological perspective on that, on that issue is the most insecure person, remember, so Chesterton talks about security as being part of humility, which is part of humor. The most insecure person is the one who will want to hammer their point home the most. They are desperately lacking in faith, and so they have reduced faith to knowledge. And that's really what fundamentalism is. It's a reduction of faith to knowledge. And in that process, I think, the reduction of... An experience of the divine into uh, a kind of experience only of the self. I don't know if that, that covers everything, but it it's an attempt.
1: Is it, it's similar to Jeff's question? Is, is sort of where, where where did the line where humor moves into mocking? Yeah. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about the <coughs> the subsuming of the paradox? It, that was, I think. Yeah. That help me, but I don't I, I don't quite understand what what is that step what what's happening there when that happens not letting it be anymore yeah not letting Um the, the that th- that let me see jump into
0: mockery? It's okay. very interesting the earliest humor theories uh, Aristotle and Plato they they would they talked about humor as as always connected to mocking in other words you would there's mocking laughter that's where you laugh at the other and you put them down and It's very clearly not what Chesterton is talking about he talks about laughing as being subservient um, and i I think oh that's how how that happens how we 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 conflate the paradox but if Christianity is talking about a posture towards reality, I think that the fundamental thing that causes this is a lack of awareness. A, la- a lack of allowing ourselves to be open to reality. Uh, that's that's a really sad answer. I can't actually explain it completely. Well, I am <laughs> that perplexed by sarcasm, your question. When when is is introduced, yeah. is introduced um, that's when it changes. Yeah. Whereas
1: um, what Chesterton talks about is
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about your category of,
1: or your description of a joke being, being a subversion of something, but you know I don't really think that. That's what. It's part of that, yes. I guess sarcasm is when the subversion is the only thing that's there, and so the joke is is only to subvert, and you don't. At the end of the day, you you, you can't keep thinking he still thinks that's a good thing. I was thinking about your Jesus golfing joke. Yeah. And like, how far? you know, if, if you put Jesus doing other activities, you could make it go darker and darker. And yeah. It'd be an interesting sort of rubric to, to see yeah. where does it go into just suburb because yeah. you no one can say that and think, well, you know, I don't really think that. And you know, I really don't really think that. So I can't. Yeah. But yeah. Here's I, I what, what makes th- the change. What makes the... Isn't that the exact moment when you uh, think on some self control I mean Yeah. it's assumed
0: and I think you can, you can make, well, I mean, as I did at the start, make a joke about Jesus, but there, there was no point at which I assumed mastery over Christ. I c- that would be ridiculous. And I think that's where, ex- exactly that thing, where as soon as you assume I'm actually more important than Christ or what He represents or Christianity, um, a big part of this for me is Ignorance. Uh, humility is connected with our celebration of truth. Truth is something that we explore and are humbled before we, we look at how it works. And in that process, we may, we may take wrong turns, but I think there is still a, des- a desperate, uh, I mean, scholarship itself. There, there's a desire to be subservient to what is actually true. And we are subservient to what is true. I mean, how many of you checked the seat that you're sitting on before you sat down? There's a kind of subservient. You really, I mean, and that really is what faith is about. Faith is relaxing. It's letting go and trusting the thing that you're falling into to hold you. And I think that's why what's so interesting about a kind of absolutized epistemology, like putting knowledge as the most important thing, is that puts us in control of what we know. The dialectical stance of, I can figure anything out. And what's so brilliant, I mean, we all know this, one of the wisest people that's ever lived was Socrates. What did Socrates say? Like many things. Most of them questioned. But he said something along the lines of, he's sure of more and more of what he does not know. And he is great because he knew that he was still subservient to reality. So, I mean, if you read Plato's dialogues, by the end, you, you don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, but there is a sense of... Cause it's, for example, Socrates will ask someone what is good, and they'll explore what goodness is. And at the end, you still know that there's something called goodness, and there's something real about goodness. But you're not very convinced of your ability to capture that in definitions. And I think that's a very healthy...
1: I, I was interested in a postcard that somebody sent <coughs> me for a birthday present. It showed uh, the quality of this, it, it showed a goldfish bowl, and there was only about 20% water remaining in it. And in, the, in this space, in this water, there were two goldfish. And they were talking to each other. And one said, I didn't realise we drank that much last night. (laughs)
0: there's something uh, William Desmond talks about returning to perplexity returning not not to complete lostness i think that's that's the thing christianity has a definite sense of being found but the interesting thing is that we are the ones being found we're not the ones we find it's like you walk through a door that says welcome in and then you go on the other side and it says you were chosen well, oh and in this constant I call this a protagonistic shift just to confuse people but it's christianity is a shift of perspectives and it uh, the first shall be last that's uh, i mean Je- jesus by the way does joke that, um there's a lot done on the humor of christ in in theory so it's and never at anyone's expense it's it's a it's a kind of celebration of existence and of otherness and the the hospitality of that joke is just <laughs> glorious. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you had a qu- question, I think? Yeah?
1: Um, when, uh, when the key- Without
0: jokes. (laughs) What a miserable (laughs) idea. I think that's why, thank you for that question. I I think that's why um, I I pointed out, Chesterton has two pictures of people. There is the possibility of being dignified, slipping on a banana peel, not being injured, still being funny. There's that that first picture, and I still think that 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 idea of the the unexpected happening. I mean, that that, uh, fishbowl joke is just perfect, because it's, uh, will there be beer in heaven? Chesterton would say, absolutely. Uh, It would be a deep tragedy if there wasn't any. So, even a joke about fish drinking will make sense. But there there um, there is not that sort of, which Chesterton was hinting at, the second part is the vulgarity says, well, there won't be an, any need for, for that sort of really uh, de- derisive vulgarity because, because we will have a proper sense of what th- where things fit and what dignity means and what it means to violate it completely. I mean, there, there are violations of dignity that are just violations. They're not benign in any way. I think that we agree with that. And I think that we even have a sense these days of what kinds of jokes we would want to laugh at. There are many jokes we shouldn't and don't want to laugh at. And so, that's fair enough. So, I I don't know exactly. I have not YouTubed the apocalypse. So, I don't know what it's like to arrive on the other side and go, Oh, this is how it works. But I bet there are going to still be jokes. Definitely. So, there's a
1: fair number of books have been written about Jesus and humor or Christianity and humor. Yes. Like how many?
0: Um, well, the, j- just a quick count on Amazon for. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: no, well, that's the thing, and that, that's obviously why I started with this. Why is it that that people don't accuse Christians of joking around? Uh, Christ- Chesterton says that the the joy is the enormous secret of the Christian. Uh, in Orthodoxy, so he finishes Orthodoxy with this picture of of Jesus as. As a mirthful being, very clearly filled with mirth, but he concealed it slightly because it was too great. The well, third
1: so thing, of course, is that um, there's a sort of correlation with happiness, isn't it? And the happier you are, the more, the more likely you are to be sort of, um, you know, grandiose or too loud.
0: Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Chesterton was remarkably joyful. People said that his laughter was always the loudest and the most infectious. He, he was, uh, I mean, you just have to pick uh, up a quotation finder. I found a, the Collins quotation finder, Chesterton is quoted almost as many times as Oscar Wilde. So I think, uh, my, what I, I think I'm trying to, in my own personal experience, find a balance between is being able to be light. Uh, Chesterton says it's very hard to be light, it's very easy to be heavy, Satan fell by the force of gravity, so it's, it's very easy to, to be heavy about things. It's hard to be light whilst also having a, a really profound sense of what is true and serious, in fact. Where are the boundaries of the playground? It's very important to know because if you don't know, you're going to run up into the street and be run over by a rhino. And that's If you're living in, in Africa, which I do, there are no rhinos in my backyard, don't worry. Um, good, I think, I think we, we have um, time for a bit more, yeah. Um, don't. Uh, so he, he talks about uh, before you want to take the splinter out of your brother's eye, take the plank out of your own. Replace plank with um, car exhaust pipe. In those days, I mean, he was just using a very simple thing, But ex- and Jewish humor is often this, it's very exaggerated. So that would be a very simple example. Um, th- there's one where... Uh, one of the disciples comes along and 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 says to another disciple, well would be disciple hey there's this guy Jesus he's he's from Nazareth he's amazing and and I think it's Bartholomew he says can anything good come out of Nazareth and Nathaniel thank you and Jesus's response is this is a guy who doesn't have any deceit in him <laughs> and it's so amazing because. It's just the the response is one of seriously Nazareth, uh, you know I don't know what the equivalent here would be, um, Swindon I don't know, Swindon Essex what? And and Jesus is like, this guy, he's trustworthy, but God came out of Nazareth, so he he got it I don't know I think that's kind of a cool joke. There, there are lots of ones. Um, I'm actually just trying to think of the... There's a book called The Humour of Christ and it's by a guy who has a really funny name and I can't remember his name. So, yeah, it's one of the problems of being an academic. I'm working my way up to being an absent-minded professor but some of it is actually uh, a little bit premature. It's actually happening now. Good.